Hey, and welcome to this podcast by Chestnut Mountain Church, located in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where our mission is to saturate the world by making disciples. We invite you to check out our website at chestnutmountain.org and follow us on social on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at chestnutmtn underscore to learn more about who we are. There are also video episodes located on our YouTube channel, along with other content not on this podcast. This episode features a sermon replay from Sunday's message. Let's take a listen. As we celebrate Christmas, we want to talk about the birth of Jesus. We want to talk about all the events around the season of Christmas, which, yes, we want to celebrate those. But what we got to be careful is that we never forget the reasons behind it. The why did Jesus come? And so last week, we unpacked two of those. The last week, we looked at he came to take away our sin. And I don't know about you, but I am so thankful of what the truth of God's word says about that. Meaning that when he came, he took away my identity as a sinner. He took my identity, he robed himself in my identity and in exchange gave me his. So he took my identity as a sinner and he robed me in his identity of of holy and righteous. And I don't know about you, but that is so humbling that that is why my savior was sent. Second reason we looked at last week was he came to destroy the works of the devil. And we simplified what are the works of the devil is that basically he wants people to die and go to hell. It's that simple. He's a liar, he's a deceiver, and those are the tools that he uses to get people there. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, he came to destroy those very works Because at the moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit invaded your life and gave you the ability to recognize the lies, but not only recognize the lies, but then also to give you the power to overcome the temptation that comes with the lies. So man, I don't know about you, but I left last week feeling victorious about who I am in Christ Jesus. That yes, he came simply to take away my sins and to destroy the work of the devil. So today we're only gonna unpack one very simple yet complex reason as to why Jesus came. I want you to flip to the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10 is where we're gonna be coming from today. And y'all know me, I always do things backwards. So we're gonna start at the very end of this section. We're gonna start in verse 45 and we're gonna work our way up, I guess you could say. But in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we see the very reason that Jesus himself says that he was sent to us, the reason that he was sent to this world. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, before we look at the reason he did come, I want us to first look at the reason that it says he did not come. It says simply there that he did not come to be served. Because you see in Jesus's time, you're gonna see how how it still very closely parallels our time in that, that in that Jesus's time, the social and the political and even the religious power was all structured with a hierarchy. 
It all started from the top and it worked its way down to the bottom. And we all know we could to testify that that still holds true to even our society today, that you have the hierarchy of authority. And basically, if you're on the top, you've got a bunch of people under you who are serving you. But what we see is that Jesus says, I have come to flip that model upside down. I have come to do the exact opposite of what society teaches. I've come to do the exact opposite of what our culture is trying to teach us what we are to do. Because someone of Jesus's influence, someone of Jesus's popularity, in most cases, he would have had a harem of people that were around him, pampering him, that were washing his feet, that were providing every meal that he needed, that would fan him when he gets hot, that when he moved from one town to the other, that he would carry him from town to town. And yes, we can look in the scriptures and we can see traces of that. But what Jesus is simply saying is, look, I didn't come so you could do all that for me. I came so that I could do all that for you. I came to flip this model of hierarchy upside down. I came not to be served, but I came to do for you what society teaches that you should be doing for me. And so that's what we love most about Jesus is he was never Never ashamed to go in an opposite direction. You see, Jesus says there, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve you. You know, I remember back when I was teaching at Davis Middle School, it was about the time when I started that the Falcons Complex had just opened up across the street. And, you know, I always thought, man, I'm gonna run into like famous athletes all the time. Never really happened until one day, I remember walking into Davis Middle School and I remember in the upper gym, I remember seeing a, a bunch of kids that were around this athlete. You could just tell this guy's over there shooting basketball. And I loved him already because he was the same height I was. And so his name was Warwick Dunn. Many of you may remember a running back for the Atlanta Falcons. And I remember walking in that room and I remember watching him and it, and it looked so strange because I looked and I saw this high prestige athlete an athlete that was worth more millions than all of the teachers of us put together. But I've watched him play basketball with a bunch of nobodies, with a bunch of little middle school kids. And the reality, the reason that that was so strange is because our culture teaches that. That when people reach a certain level that they're untouchable. But what was so humbling about it is to watch this athlete come and lock arms with a bunch of little snotty-nosed middle schoolers and to play basketball with them for hours. But it was so, I was so set back because that is so opposite of what our culture and our society teaches. And so we see that it was strange because it's not like anything that we normally see. And so we see that Jesus has come to do that very thing. Jesus has come as the Messiah to get in the weeds with just a bunch of nobodies like me and you. But I want us to back up a little bit this morning so that we can look at the, the conversations and the events that led up to such a bold statement of him saying, I came to not be served, but to serve. So I want you to slide back up that passage to verse 32. And we're just gonna kind of read this verse by verse and then just talk about them. But in verse 32, it says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. You may wanna highlight that, underline that because that is so, so rich as to what he's saying there. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them 
And they were amazed. And those who followed him were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen. Now, the reason that this is so good is the fact that they're on their way to Jerusalem lets all the people that were following him know exactly what was going on. Because if you notice, it said that he gathered the disciples together and told them again. What we realize is this is the third time that Jesus has told them what's gonna happen. This is the third time that Jesus has said, we are going to Jerusalem and here's the events that are going to happen. And that's what he says in verse 33. He tells them again what's gonna happen. Look at verse 33, saying this, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So here we have this situation that Jesus is out in front. His disciples and all the others are following him on the way to Jerusalem. So we know that Jesus is walking into persecution and he's ultimately walking into the persecution that's gonna lead to his murder. And so we see that the group of people that are following him are are going back and forth with, with two different emotions. Some were amazed and some were fearful. So obviously the fearful one is, is pretty self-explanatory. We know that Jesus is walking to his murder. So the people that had began to love Jesus and to see Jesus serve people, they were fearful because they didn't wanna see this man die because they knew exactly what he was going into because he's already told them several times. But what caught my attention was the fact that they were amazed, that they were amazed. And I thought, well, what, what were they amazed by? When we study and we look, the reason that they were amazed is that they were amazed by Jesus's mindset and Jesus's attitude. Because when we look at that, you remember, he's told them three times already what's gonna happen. He knows that he's walking into his murder. He's walking into the persecution. But we see that who was out front? It says that Jesus was walking on ahead of them. I don't know about you, but if I know I'm walking into murder, my murder, I don't know that I'm out front of a crowd saying, hey, let's go guys. I don't know that I'm out front leading the way that Jesus was leading. And so all those that were following him, specifically the disciples, they were amazed at Jesus's mindset. They were amazed at Jesus's attitude. But what they were seeing, the reason that they were amazed is they were seeing the sheer determination for the Savior to do what his father had sent him to do. They saw such a boldness. They saw such a determination for him to finish the work that the father had sent him to do. And I want you to flip to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. And I will have to make a, a football reference here in just a moment, so I apologize. I was trying not to mention anything today, but we have to, it's already in the outline. But talking about determination, we see that the prophet Isaiah gives us a little bit of detail here as to how determined our Savior was. 
So he's prophesying about this event that's taking place that we're reading about in the gospel of Mark. But I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. Now remember, this would be the Savior. He says, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Listen to this. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. You see, the fact that Jesus says here, I have set my face like flint. If you're like me, you're like, okay, well, what is flint? I know that maybe you sharpen some knives, you start some fire, but, but what is, what is the, what's the importance of, of him talking about his face being like flint? Flint is this, it is a very hard, dark rock that is used figuratively in the Bible to talk about hardness. So as it even references the firmness of a horse's hoof. But I want you to listen to these two definitions of flint. The toughness of an impossible task. And the inflexibility, listen to this. The inflexibility of unwavering determination. I don't know about you, but I hear that, and I hear how determined my Savior was to serve me and to serve you, that he was going to set his face like flint, and he was walking into something with sheer determination, and nothing was going to hinder him from it. Nothing was going to stop him from what God had called him to do. And so I want you just to get that visual. Here they are on the way to Jerusalem. Here's the savior of the world, the spotless lamb of God, the son of God, being led to his death, being led to his murder so that he could come and serve us, so that he could serve, lay his life down as a ransom for ours. But he's out in front of all these people with this face of sheer determination and going, nothing's gonna stop me because this is what God has called me to do and I'm not gonna stop until his mission is accomplished. And so we get that visual of Jesus coming out of the tunnel on a Saturday. I don't know, but I was watching a game last night. Not one game, it was after that. And I was watching, I think it was at Michigan and Iowa's date or somebody. And it showed the guys they were standing there because my wife made reference to it. She said, are they all holding hands? And if you noticed, all the men were standing in the tunnel, all the men, all these young boys, 18 years old, are standing in the tunnel holding hands. And if you looked at all of their faces, it was just sheer determination. And man, I was looking at that and I was going, you know what? That determination doesn't hold a candle to the determination of what my Savior looked like that he was out in front leading the very people who would reject him. Gonna die for the very people who wanted nothing to do with them. But reality was, is he was so determined to accomplish the work that his father had called him to do that he didn't care how people were gonna receive him. But he was set his face like flint. And if you read around that, 
I can't help but like the coach coming out of me and I, I read all the verses around that verse seven in Isaiah chapter 50 and I'm wondering in my mind, I'm, I'm setting this visual of, of Jesus just out in front of these people with this host of people behind him and he's just determined. And then you look starting in verse five, was Jesus just saying these words over and over to himself, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I do not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near and who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them. That's determination. He's saying, I know what I'm walking into and I know I'm walking to my death. Who is it that comes against me? Who is it that thinks they can fight me? Because it doesn't matter at this point because my God is gonna help me. There's many of you that need to hear that this morning that it doesn't matter what you're walking into that the Lord God wants to help you. You need to have the mindset of Jesus don't think you're on this journey by yourself. You need to set your face like a flint and be reminded of the promise of God that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Whew, I'm sweating now. Y'all may not have got it like I did, but I was hollering the other day. But here you have these people that they're just amazed at this determination of somebody to serve them. You do realize that's the simplicity of this, that Jesus was absolutely determined to serve people. The King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the savior of the universe. He says, you know what? I've come to serve you. I've come to lay my life down for you. And that's exactly the opposite of what culture teaches I should be doing. That's the very reason that he was rejected. He didn't show up the way the world thought he should. So here we have the, the people, the disciples, they're amazed. They've never seen anything like this before. So the disciples are watching this determination. They're hearing the reason behind the determination. But then they ask a question. Look at verse 35 in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. The flesh of me, you just wanna smack them upside the head. What are y'all thinking? The determination that is on his face to die for you, but yet you want to take a time out and say, hey, Jesus, we got something you want to do for us. As if I'm not doing, if I'm Jesus, I'm turning around saying, dude, are you kidding me? I've came to be not served, 
but to serve you and I'm gonna die for you. Now what do you want? But then Jesus being Jesus, look how he answers in verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? That's the savior we serve. But then we go on in verse 37. They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So when we read this on the surface, we think like my mind was just blurting out how selfish of them. How could they be thinking about what's in this for them? He's about to die and they're worried about where they're gonna be seated. So while we do hear a sense of, of, or a hint of selfish motive, as I was studying this week, I found that scholars believe that it's not necessarily as bad as you and I would think it is, meaning the question. And what I mean by that is they believe that they're asking a question based off a promise that Jesus has already told them. And so if you flip back to Matthew chapter 19, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it right quick. But in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, listen to the promise that Jesus tells the disciples. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the more I studied and the more I looked into that, what we find is many scholars believe that this is the true heart that the disciples had for Jesus is they wanted to know how close they were gonna be to their savior. They wanted to know how close they were gonna be sitting in the presence of the very one that came to serve them. So there's not as much selfishness in that as there is love because they wanted to be with the one who was gonna lay his life down for them. And they said, Jesus, how close will we be to you and will we have your power? How close will we be to you and will we have your power? Now we could take some time and we could look on past those verses and we could unpack all of the dialogue that goes on between James and John and Jesus, but we don't have time for that because it's really kind of beside the point as to the reason that Jesus came. But what we know is that while James and John are asking Jesus this question of where will we sit? Will we have your glory? Will we, will we be with you in your glory? Will we have your power? There's 10 other disciples that are kind of overhearing this conversation. They're overhearing what James and John are asking of Jesus. And so we see that in verse 41, chapter 10, verse 41, we hear or see how they respond. Hearing this, meaning that they heard the questions that were being asked, hearing this, the 10 begin to feel indignant with James and John. They begin to get mad at James and John. They begin to get jealous of James and John because the truth is, is these other 10 disciples are sitting there and they're, they're thinking now that James and John have got a leg up. They think now that James and John are gonna say, hey, you know what, Jesus, we wanna be closest. And so if they're the closest, what does that mean for the other guys? You've kind of been pushed to the side. And so we see that they begin to get angry because they feel like they've kind of beat them to the punch. Because maybe they were all asking that question in their mind, but James and John were the only bold enough ones to ask such a question. And so we see that they were, they were beginning to get jealous. They begin to get upset 
because they didn't want James and John to have a platform that maybe they wanted or maybe they didn't want them to have the success that they were hungry for themselves. And so I examined my life and I even would ask you this question. Are there ever times in serving the Lord that we feel exactly the way the other 10 did? Do we see people get credit for serving God? Do we see people getting patted on the back for what they're doing for the Lord? And you're over here going, well, man, you know what? I'm doing the same thing and nobody notices. I'm doing the same thing and nobody notices. In our flesh, it is so easy to get discouraged. It is so easy to get frustrated and to the point where we're like, you know what? If nobody's gonna notice, then I'm just gonna stop. I'm just gonna stop because the truth is, is they're getting more attention than me. Nobody's recognizing what I'm doing. So I can go back to doing nothing and get recognized just as much as I was before. So what's the point? And so we wonder, is that's what's going on through these other 10? Were they frustrated that maybe they won't get noticed? But you see, the truth is, is what we find is that those 10, you gotta ask the question, were they wanting to use their positioning with Jesus and the power of Jesus for their own honor and glory versus his? Is that ultimately why they were jealous? Is that ultimately why they were frustrated? is because they were wanting to use their position with Christ so that they could be patted on the back instead of making sure that he got the glory. You know, that's just a question that all of us need to ask because the truth is, is their culture as well as our culture teaches us that our position, whatever it may be, is a position so that we get praised, is a position so that we get glory. And so what Jesus is telling them, what he's about to tell them is, look, you've got it all wrong. Remember your position and your power is not for your own glory, but ultimately it's gonna be for mine. And so Jesus is going to remind them of that. And, and this is kind of the funny part. We, we see that Jesus is probably right in the middle of all of this and he's, watching this division begin to happen. Because you do realize this, that the enemy can use jealousy to bring dissension. The enemy can use jealousy to bring dissension. And this is why that we have the heart of, of wanting to celebrate what is going on down the street at other churches every week is because we wanna make sure that we're all staying wired for victory rather than jealousy. That we need to celebrate when God is moving down the road at another church. We don't need to be jealous of that. We need to celebrate that. And I believe with everything in me, as long as we continue to celebrate that, God is gonna to continue to give us things to celebrate here. But we've gotta get over this whole jealousy thing of, of this church is better, this church is better, they're doing it better than we are, they're doing, here's the reality. As long as we're obedient to God, I don't care how anybody else is doing it. 
We are responsible for doing what God has called us to do. It may not be the most flashy, flashy. It may not be the most popular, but at the end of the day, we just want to be the most obedient. And that's all that matters. And that is all that matters. And so if even the church can get over this jealousy, can you imagine how we can influence our community for the kingdom of God? Can you imagine what it looks like if churches come together and lock arms with each other? Next Sunday, we're gonna be in here with two other churches. I told somebody that this week and they said, do what? Y'all gonna have two other churches with you on Sunday morning? I'm like, the way I see it, it's just one big church. We're just one happy family. We're gonna worship together and celebrate together. What would it look like if once a quarter, if the whole county canceled their campus services and met some neutral site and worshiped together? Now, I'm really spitballing here. I have no idea that's nowhere in here. But what would it look like if hundreds of thousands of people came together under one name, not one denomination, not one church name, but under one name of Jesus Christ, and we did this thing together? The world would notice and the world would be drawn to the Savior who came not to be served, but the Savior that came to serve. And so we see here that this dissension, this animosity of jealousy is, is starting to cause some friction between the disciples and Jesus overhears it and he addresses it in verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, here's the hierarchy of our world in a nutshell. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. So I just get this picture of Jesus. Here's the 12 disciples. They're arguing, they're bickering. They're starting to, to the friction. They're, well, what, why did you ask? We were gonna ask first. And we see that friction. And it's almost as Jesus, you see the father go, Come here, little children. Y'all come here. Sit down, crisscross applesauce. And it's like he just addresses them as babies. And it's like he says, look, now you know the world. They want you to use your power to lord it over people. But that's not what we're about. You have power. You are seated with me so that we can serve people. So get over yourself. Get over everybody is supposed to serve you. Get over that it's about your position. Get over that it's about the credit that you're gonna receive because the reality is it's all about me and it's all about the Father who sent me. So let's get over ourselves for just a moment. Let's get over ourselves for just a second and then he goes and he unpacks the fact that he leads by example. And we read that in verse 44 and verse 45 or start with 43, I'm sorry. Verse 43, it says, but it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. Then he wraps it up with where we started. For even me, the Messiah, the King of all kings, 
For even me, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, Jesus is simply reminding them by the way that he has led that you have position and power not for you. You have position and power not so that you receive glory, but you have position and power so that I receive the glory. You have position and power not so that people can serve you, but you have position and power so that you can serve others. That is the very reason that I was sent. And Jesus, I think about the things that if, because I think we forget times that Jesus was, while 100% man was 100% God. But when we think about him being 100% man, I think about just some words that he would potentially say. He said, look guys, I was sent not to be loved, but I was sent to love. That's hard. That's hard as a human to realize, you know what? I'm not here so that people will love me. I'm here so that I can love them. Because we can all agree that there's a lot of people that are hard to love. You're about to see all of them at Christmas. <laughs> Called your family. Right? So you need to pray. Look, God, I know. I'm not going to this Christmas party to be loved. But I'm going to love. You're going to have to die to yourself several times. But Jesus is saying, look, that's the reason we're here. That's the reason that I was sent. I was sent not to be served, but to serve. I was sent not to be loved, but to love. And we see the determination on his way to Jerusalem that he was doing exactly what he had been sent to do. But I want us to close with this thought. You know, if we're not careful, when we think about the fact that Jesus was sent to, to serve, if we're not careful, we'll limit that to the event that took place on the cross We'll limit that to the resurrection because we all know, yes, that is ultimately the reason that he came is so that we could have life and have it everlasting. And that was only done through the death, burial, and the resurrection of a perfect lamb of God. And so if we limit it to that, we think, well, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm saved by the grace of God. And yes, we're never gonna get over celebrating that. So don't misunderstand me when, I'm, when I'm, I'm not overlooking salvation because that's everything. But what I want us to be careful of is exactly what Carter was speaking to just a moment ago. You realize that Jesus, now through the power of the Holy Spirit, was not limited just to serve us on the cross. 
The Holy Spirit of God is still alive. The Holy Spirit of God is still active. And what I mean by that is we serve a savior who never changes. So the fact that he came not to be served, but to serve lets us know that we are in the presence of an almighty God who continues to want to serve you. I don't know about you, but that is one of the most humbling thoughts. He's already died. He's already paid my price. He's already taken care of my penalty. And you're saying that he still wants to serve me? Yes, Jesus stated that. I think it's in John 14, 16. He says, I've asked the father that he would send a comforter. That when my physical body ascends back to heaven, that I'm asking the father to send in exchange a comforter. I'm sending the Holy Spirit of myself to comfort you, to empower you, to encourage you, to love you. And do you realize that that is still alive and an active ministry that Jesus is still doing? It wasn't limited to the cross. The savior of the world is here in our midst today and he still wants to wash our feet. Huh? He still wants to stoop himself to that level to love me that much. Yeah. And that's why it makes no sense to our culture. That's why it makes no sense to our world. And so you say, well, Brian, how, how, what does that look like? What does that mean that the savior of the world still wants to serve me? Because the truth is, is we wake up every day of our life looking for something. We're looking for peace. We're looking for comfort. We're looking for strength. We're looking for courage. And you realize that our flesh thinks that we have the ability to provide that for ourselves. But going back to what we talked about last week, that father-child relationship, the father was sent to provide for the child what the child could not provide for themselves on their own. So I'm here to tell you this morning, if you're looking for peace, if you're looking for joy, if you're looking for comfort, if you're looking for courage, if you're looking for hope, you can't find it in anything this world has to offer. Nothing. You may get a hint of it. It may feel good for just a little while. It may put a Band-Aid on it for just a moment, but can I tell you, it will run dry. But Jesus, the savior of the world says, I am still alive. I am still active in your life. And if you need comforted today, come to me. If you need rest today, come to me. If you need strength today, come to me. If you need courage today, come to me because I'm still here to give you what you can't provide yourself. Church, that is hope in a nutshell. Because how many in this room that you're gonna wake up tomorrow morning and you're gonna look to fill all of those gaps with something this world has to offer? 
well, Brian, I just don't feel like I'm worth a whole lot, but you know what? I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to work and I'm going to give it my all. You should give your all. Great. Praise God for you giving your all. But I go ahead and tell you right now, giving your all at your job is not going to fill the void that the Holy Spirit of God wants to fill. Maybe in the morning you wake up and the only thing that you think can bring joy or peace is at the bottom of a bottle. Can I tell you, it may last for a little while, but it will run dry. And that void that you were trying to fill, you'll now find bigger than it was to begin with. Maybe it's in some, some addiction of drugs. Maybe you think, man, if I can just get one more hit to get me through the next few hours, I'll be fine. It may get you through the next few hours, but you're still as hopeless as you were before you stuck a needle in your arm, before you took a prescription drug that the doctor prescribed. Church, we're all, at some point in our life, we were all hopeless. And because we serve a savior who said, you know what? I came not to be served, but I came to give the hopeless hope. And so there's no doubt in my mind that in this room this morning that there's many people you've put on your church face today You've been all smiles. But deep inside that you are trying to fill a void. You say, well, Brian, I know I've been saved by the grace of God. I know I'm a believer. But I'm still trying to find hope. I'm still trying to find peace. I'm still trying to find strength. I'm still trying to find courage. Stop looking. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you finally got to a point where you realized you couldn't save yourself and you fell at the foot of the cross and you said, Jesus, I can't save me, so I'm asking you to save me. That was a humbling moment if you've trusted Jesus as your savior. That is why we see people broken in that moment because there's that sense of humility that we realize because we as people, we don't like to admit that we don't have the answer, that we can't do it. But Jesus is waiting on you to say you can't do it. And he's saying, hey, let the Father provide for you what you can't do for yourself. So this morning, I wonder who's in the room. I don't care what face you put on when you walk through the parking lot. Take it off and cling to this promise. The psalmist writes this in a song. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, here's that determination, I will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains will slip into the heart of the sea, 
Though the waters will roar and foam, though the mountains will quake as it is a swelling pride. I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know what your sea is like. I don't know what you feel like you're drowning in, but somebody needs to run to this altar today and say, God, you're my refuge and strength. You're my help right now in my circumstances. God, I've tried to fix it. God, I've tried to solve it. But according to the scripture of this, you are still active and you want to provide that for me. And God, that doesn't make sense. I thought you died on the cross and that was enough. But yet this little guy up here is telling me, you still wanna love me. You still wanna serve me. Absolutely, that is the savior we serve. He was sent not to be served, but to serve. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you made a decision or if you have any questions about salvation or anything about this Christian journey, one of our pastors would love to connect with you. So to connect and find out what your next steps are, go to our website at chestnutmountain.org slash steps, and there will be a form for you to fill out so one of our pastors can connect with you. We also want you to do three things right now. Number one, leave a review on this podcast. Tell us what you think. And also, a review allows us to reach even more people. Number two, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already so you don't miss an episode during the week. And number three, we want you to go check out our Chestnut Mountain Church YouTube channel. So maybe there's some visuals in this episode that you couldn't see but wanted to see. And that's why we have video versions of these episodes along with other content not featured on this podcast right now on our YouTube channel. Lastly, we invite you to join us live for worship on Sunday mornings in person at 9 o'clock or 1045 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or online at 1045 as well. Learn more about us on our website at chestnutmountain.org and don't forget to follow us on social at chestnutmtn underscore for more encouragement and to see all what God is doing in and through CMC. We love you, we're praying for you, and we'll see you next time.